Many of the most vociferous critics of religion today demand irrefutable, airtight proof of the existence of God before they are willing to concede their atheism. But absolute airtight proof of any theory is actually quite rare, even in scientific pursuits and especially in matters of faith like evolution or the existence of God. Many good thinkers have set about to prove God over the centuries, and yet from a logical point of view, they have nearly as much difficulty as those who try to disprove him. Indeed, if he could be proven, there wouldn't be any need for faith. There are, however, some very good rational reasons to believe that he does exist, and we've come to the point in our Clues series this morning where we're going to have a look at a few of those. I'm going to enjoy these next couple of weeks because I enjoy science. I am kind of a numbers person. Can't remember a lot of the names of prior church members in other places, but I still remember their telephone numbers. <laughs> but you may not be that interested in thinking about the odds and the probability that a certain thing happened in nature, if that's so, then I invite you just to consider the wonder of creation as we think about it, and I'll try not to belabor the fine points too much. Maybe some of you can think about it as a challenge to your perspective just a little bit. For example, I was burying some pipe up at the school a few days ago before Michael Luke poured the ramp, and that place is just filled with rocks. You cannot dig, no matter where you dig, rocks, rocks, rocks. Anyone else ever experienced that when you're digging around here? Squim potatoes? Yeah. And you might get frustrated because you're digging, uh, while you're digging rocks, but did you know that in the universe, rocks are actually very, very rare? They are. And did you know that rocks come from deep within the interior of stars? It kind of puts a little different perspective on it when your shovel keeps whacking them. But that's just a little hint. In case you're here for the first time in a while or you've forgotten, we're using Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, as our outside reading. And if you want one but didn't get one, ask me, and I will make sure that you get one. I don't know how, much more, how many more of these to order, so if you need one, call me, Text me, email me, call Jay, whatever, say, I need one and I'll order that many and you will have one. They're free. They might be used, but they're free. We're in the second half of the book now, and the aim here is to show that there are sufficient reasons for believing Christianity. And the reason we're thinking about this, because after all, most of you are the choir, right? We preach to the choir. It's so that we can be prepared when we get to share with people who aren't part of the choir, so that we'll know that there's good rational reasons and we can share that with people who are willing to think a little bit. Even if scientists are reluctant to ever say any theory is absolutely proven, the whole business of science is about testing theories and finding out which ones fit the observable data the best. When scientists talk about things like settled science, and you've heard that phrase, that expression, what that really means is that the consensus is that most of the data points to a particular explanation of something uh, are the most reasonable explanation. There may be other explanations, but that seems to be the most reasonable one, and that's what we look for in science. Belief in God can be approached the same way. The theory that God does indeed exist would lead us to expect the kind of things that we actually observe in nature. That there is a universe, for example. That the universe operates according to rational, repeatable, consistent principles. In other words, scientific principles. That there is, within the universe, a certain indelible moral sense. These are things that we observe in nature, and, that, and they are what we would expect to observe if God exists. The theory that, that God does not exist would not lead us to expect any of these things. Other theories would have to be developed to explain the existence of the universe, the indelible moral sense within it, the consistent, rational way that it works. 
other theories that must explain these things in a more satisfying way. And frankly, there aren't any. There are other theories, but are they consistently satisfying? And so the belief in God can be considered a better experimental fit because it accounts for the things we see better than the alternative theories. Does that make any sense? All right. That's where we're going this morning. And I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He, he's speaking to skeptics here. He says, uh, I ask you to put on Christianity like a pair of spectacles and look at the world with it. See what power it has to explain what we know and see. So although we can't prove God, many people, including many, many scientists, have found strong clues for his reality in many places, his divine fingerprints. And here's the thing about clues. One or two clues usually won't make for a very compelling case, will it? But when you have the accumulated weight of many of them, the conclusion can be pretty formidable. So, clue number one this morning, and I'll frame it in the form of a question. Why is there something rather than nothing? That's really intriguing when you think about it. Why is there something rather than nothing? In other words, where did stuff come from? We came home late a few weeks ago. The weather was clear. There was no moon. Uh, we got out of the car. There's no streetlights in our neighborhood. And wow, spread out up above us was the Milky Way in all its splendor. The sky was absolutely stunning. Same stars, the same constellations that men and women have been looking at for millennia. Stories told of a group of sailors on the flagship of Napoleon's naval expedition, high-ranking officers standing on the deck of his ship as it crossed the Mediterranean, headed toward Egypt. Most of them were spiritual skeptics, and they stood there under the glittering Milky Way, bantering back and forth their atheistic theories until finally Napoleon grew tired of hearing it, and he said, your arguments are all very clever, sirs, but tell me, who made these? It's not a bad question, actually. In fact, God himself uses it in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 is one of the most beautiful chapters of the Old Testament, in my opinion. Several well-known passages come from this chapter, including this favorite at the end. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Now here's the context of Isaiah chapter 40. The unthinkable is about to happen to Judah. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar will come and lay siege to Jerusalem and demolish it. They will burn the great temple of God to the ground. They will haul the people off to Babylon where they will be held captive for 70 years. Most of them and their descendants will never return. It will be a calamity of unimaginable magnitude. But against that coming catastrophe, chapter 40 of Isaiah stands out as God's tender promise to his people of release and restoration. Chapter 40 inaugurates a whole new direction in Isaiah's prophecies. Before chapter 40, the theme is consistently the coming judgment of God against sin, both to Israel and to the nations round about. But chapter 40 opens up a whole new direction, speaking hope and comfort to God's people, even as they are being taken away to Babylon. From here on, Isaiah will reveal the coming of Jesus as the Redeemer and ultimately speak of eternal life in a new creation, free from the curse of sin and death. But chapter 40 also contains some elements of rebuke in it because the whole problem with God's people then, as it is now, was their repeated slide into idolatry. 
So what is idolatry? We think idolatry is to bow down to little stone statues. How quaint. No. At its root, idolatry is the substitution of some thing for God. Idolatry attributes the power and the actions of God to some other cause other than God. Idolatry credits God's creative and sustaining acts to some other cause, to some other agency. And in Isaiah's day, those somethings were pagan deities represented by little wooden or stone statues called idols. And that's why you find Isaiah saying things like, to whom will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? That's verse 18. And that's a very intriguing question. And in the next verse, he implies another interesting question. The next verse says, as for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. What's the question that's implied in that verse? Well, the question is, where do you think an idol comes from? Where do, I, where do these little figurines come from anyway? Craftsmen make them, Isaiah says. Goldsmiths overlay them with gold. They make the chains that hold them. That's where they come from. He's saying idols don't just appear. They are made by technicians. And using the very same logic now, God says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? You know idols are made by craftsmen, so who made stars? To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. This is a fundamental principle of Scripture. God offers as compelling evidence of his existence and his power, the creation. So clue number one, stuff does indeed exist. There is something rather than nothing, which means something or somebody made it. And clue number two, the stuff is actually very well made. It's good stuff. It works as it should. There is order, predictability, beauty even. There's great underlying harmony in how the universe works. And, of course, you realize this. The whole reason we worship has to do with honoring the one who has the ability to make, to create, and who does it so amazingly well. Over and over again, Scripture connects God's creative work and the worship response. Creation, worship. Creation, worship. And by the way, this is a freebie here. You know that God commands his people to sing new music when they come to worship, don't you? You know that, right? He never says, I mean, he, he, he never says, sing an old song to the Lord. Now, we, we sing old songs, and that's good. They're okay. But he says, sing a new song to the Lord. Why do you suppose he says that, new song? Hmm? Maybe it's because it's a creative thing. And worship is about honoring the God who creates, who makes new things. So, God is worthy of worship because he has made all things well. Now, here's an example of that link. Think about the book of Job. Job is the story of a good man and four of his good friends trying to understand why disaster has come upon one of them. None of them has any idea as to the backstory, what's going on between Christ and Satan and the onlooking universe. And for the life of them, not one of them can figure it out. Their conversation through 36 chapters reveals that they have some serious misunderstandings about God. Even Job doesn't get it. 
And then finally, at the end of the story, God himself answers. And when he answers, he does not answer on, on the basis of the controversy between himself and Satan. We would expect that he would. He does not say, okay, guys, the reason that this has happened is because of Satan's challenge and because I knew I could count on the fidelity of my friend Job. No. He answers on the basis of his own creative act. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you understand. On what were its footings set? Or who laid the cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? God says, have you ever been down to the bottom of the ocean? Well, I made those. Have you ever seen the storehouses of the snow? I made those too. And while you're at it, check out the ostrich and the hawk. Check out the rain and the ice. Check out the ox and the eagle and the power of the horse. I made those. Why is it that God answers that way? Huh? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he trot out one by one all these awesome evidences of his creation, one after the other? Maybe it's because they are all evidences of the kind of God he is. He is a good God because he makes good stuff. And then we come to Job 38 and verse 31. God says, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? That's a constellation of stars, okay, you know that. Sometimes you can see them in the night sky. He says, can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Well, in Isaiah, God says, yeah, I can. I did that. I bring out the starry host one by one. I call them, each of them by name. And then Job's response to all this. What is Job's response to all this? Do you remember? He worships. He worships. And then in verse 33, God says, do you know the laws of the heavens? And for hundreds of generations, that question was pretty much a rhetorical question. Nobody had any technical understanding whatsoever of the laws of the universe. Not anymore. Not anymore. Science has given us vast new knowledge of how things work. And in so doing, science itself gives us a second compelling clue that points to God, not only of his existence, but of his goodness. God says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? And so that's exactly what we're going to do for a few minutes. When you came in this morning, you should have been given a penny. How many of you got a penny? If you did, take it out of your pocket or your purse at this point. You can't buy much with a penny anymore. So this is going to be a really cheap illustration. But at least you can tell your friends that when you came to worship today, they were passing out cash. That ought to spark their interest a little bit. Right? All got it? Here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to take it. I want you to hold it in your hand. And I want you just to look at it. Look at that penny. And while you're looking at it, Think about this. This was the size of the whole universe when it was just one trillion, trillion, trillionth of a second old. Of course, it was spherical, not flat like your penny, but exactly the same size as that little copper-clad coin you're looking at. It would have been an incredibly dense, incredibly hot, incredibly heavy, you can put it away now if you want to you can keep it you don't have to return it <laughs> by the time the universe had expanded to the size of your penny the temperature had climbed to a hundred thousand million degrees centigrade give or take a little bit makes the guts of even the hottest stars feel like January in North Dakota by comparison so hot that not even the nuclei of atoms could hold together. Nothing but the most elementary particles like electrons, positrons, and neutrinos, which lack both electrical charge and mass. 
and it was all exploding outward really, really fast. Oh, and there was one other particle, photons. A photon is a particle of light. The universe was filled with light. So writes astrophysicist, Nobel laureate, Steven Weinberg. Just light everywhere. I seem to remember another author who wrote something like, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The primordial fiat lux, the voice of God commanding light into existence. Theoretical astrophysicists now know quite a bit about that. Of course, there is a disclaimer, and that is, in the world of theoretical astrophysics, that world is constantly changing, so today's best understanding might be obsolete tomorrow. You realize that. But here's what they know. You're all familiar with the phrase, the Big Bang, right? Well, the fact is, Many, many scientists today believe that energy, matter, space, and time all had a beginning way back at the Big Bang. Of course, they are not all in total agreement about when this might have happened or how it happened or the precise mechanism for it, but they all believe, most of them at least, that there was a start, which is significant because that's not the way it has always been. Up until about 1915 or so, most scientists thought the universe had always been, that it was just rock-solid eternal. Before about 1915, those folks who believed that there had been a beginning had to use 100% faith because there wasn't much scientific evidence to support otherwise. From the days of ancient Greece, smart people mostly all assumed the universe was eternal. Matter had simply always existed. And then, in 1915, something unexpected happened. Albert Einstein developed the theory of general relativity and began applying it to the universe. When he did that, he discovered something so shocking, he couldn't believe it. The mathematics indicated the universe should either be exploding or imploding, either expanding or contracting. But Einstein had always been a believer in the eternal, steady-state, rock-solid nature of things, like all scientists of his day. So in order to make the math predict a static universe, he actually had to fudge his equations. He put a fudge factor in to hold the universe steady. You all know what a fudge factor is, don't you? Mm -hmm. A fudge factor is an extra number that a scientist or an engineer or a student in a university like myself will throw in to make the experimental results match the theoretical expectation. But then something else happened. In the 1920s, two scientists, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, were able to develop models based on Einstein's theory, and they predicted that the universe was not static, nor was it contracting, it was, in fact, expanding. This was absolutely revolutionary concept when it was first published, and it had an astounding implication. If the universe is expanding, then you can calculate backward in time. Okay, this, ima imagine it like this. Imagine like running a film in reverse, backwards. Imagine an, uh, uh, somebody ex films an explosion using a high-speed motion camera, and then you run it backwards. And you watch all the, the pieces and the smoke and the fire all come back together into one, all right? So that's what Lemaitre did. He ran the equations back in time. And if you do that, the universe shrinks down to a, sing, a, a, a single point, even smaller than a penny. And before that, before that, it didn't exist at all. Now, there was a very famous British astronomer living at that time by the name of Sir Fred Hoyle. Sir Fred thought Lemaitre was a pure idiot, and so he called his idea a big bang, meaning to be derisive, but it stuck. And then in 1929, another very famous astronomer whom you've all heard of, his name was Edwin Hubble, and there's a big old telescope in orbit out there in space named after him called the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, Edwin Hubble made a remarkable discovery 
he found that the light that is coming to us from very distant galaxies appears to be redder than it should be. And not only that, Hubble discovered that light coming to us from all the galaxies appears redder than it should be. Hubble called this the red shift, and he published his results. Now, the question, of course, is why? Why does all the light coming to us from other galaxies in outer space appear just a little bit redder than it should be? And there is only one reasonable explanation. There are a lot of explanations but only one that's really reasonable that seems to fit all the observable data the best, and that is that all the galaxies are moving away from us so fast that the speed shifts the light into the red end of the spectrum. So no matter which way you point the telescope, everything looks just a little bit red because everything is moving away. Now you can actually do an experiment on how this works, okay? And this would make a really good children's story. You kids, here's what you do. Nathan, listen up. You stand out in front of your house, and you have your mom or your dad drive the car way down the street about an eighth of a mile or so, and then turn around and tell them to drive the car back toward you, laying on the horn the whole time. Just hold the horn down okay? and listen to how the horn sounds. As she's driving toward you, the horn will be at a high pitch. And as she passes you and drives away, the pitch of the horn will drop as it goes away, see? And the reason that happens is because when she's coming toward you, the speed of the car pushes the sound waves and they get all bunched up. And the closer the sound waves are to each other, the higher the pitch. But when she's going away from you, the car's speed makes the waves spread out. And the farther apart the waves are, the lower the pitch. Light works the same way. It's just that you have to be going a whole lot faster than 30 miles an hour to make it work. you got to be going a couple of million miles an hour at least to make this work. But if a car was coming toward you at a couple million miles an hour with its headlights on, that would be a very speedy car, the headlights would look bluish because the light waves would be squeezed together as the car comes toward you and uh, the closer the light waves are bunched together, the bluer they look. So if that car is coming toward you and you see blue lights, you're in trouble. <laughs> if astronomers pointed their telescopes at the heavens and everywhere they pointed it looked bluish, we'd be in trouble. But when light rays get spread apart, they turn red. What Hubble discovered was this. The universe is actually flying apart, exploding at enormous velocities, exactly like Einstein had first predicted, exactly like Friedman and Lemaitre had predicted. And then, in the 1940s, another scientist named George Gamow theorized that if the Big Bang had really happened, there would still be some primordial radiation left over from that big blast, and the background temperature of that radiation would be just a few degrees above absolute zero. Now, on the Fahrenheit scale, absolute zero is 490 degrees below. It's really, really cold. Way colder than North Dakota in the winter. It took 25 years. But sure enough, in 1965, two scientists accidentally discovered background radiation left over from the Big Bang. And guess what? The temperature of that radiation was just 3.7 degrees above absolute zero. And by the way, isn't it interesting how much cool stuff is discovered by accident? They're looking for one thing, but they stumble onto something way better, and all the science books have to get revised. Now, another corroborating evidence for the Big Bang is the fact that there are very light elements in the universe, stuff like hydrogen and helium. Ever wonder where helium comes from? Not from wells in Texas. That's just where we happen to find it now. But how is it made? 
Heavier elements like carbon and silicon and iron are synthesized in the interior of stars and then flung out into deep space through supernova when the star explodes. And later on, some of that matter might clump together to form chunks and then maybe planets, and eventually it ends up in your yard when you, where you hit it with a shovel, and you're shoveling. But to make the really light stuff, like helium and hydrogen, you've got to have an oven way hotter than what's available inside even the hottest stars. Only temperatures like what you might encounter at the Big Bang billions of degrees can synthesize the lighter elements. And most of the matter in the universe is light, the lighter elements. Most of the matter in the universe is hydrogen and helium. No kidding. Iron and silicon and oxygen and carbon, rocks, in other words, actually qu quite rare. Now, here's the main point of all this, and it's really pretty basic. The universe really did have a beginning. And so the most intriguing question is this one. What caused it to spring into existence? Can it all just happen by itself? Is that how things work? Is that how you know things to work? Way back in the ninth century, a Muslim theologian and a mathematician by the name of Al-Ghazali developed what eventually became known as the Kalam Cosmological Argument, which is still rock solid today, by the way, philosophically speaking at least. Kalam is the Arabic word that means speech, and it comes from the idea that God spoke things into existence. The argument has three parts, and it goes like this. Part number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Part number two, the universe began to exist, and therefore, the universe has a cause. Think about that for just a moment. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. We know that's true intuitively, but there's also scientific evidence for it, too. It is a principle that has been cons constantly confirmed and never once falsified. That doesn't mean it couldn't be falsified, just means that we've, it, we've never seen it to be falsified. You never see anything coming into existence uncaused, all by itself. Nothing. Not even in quantum theory. Let me give you an example of this. How many of you listen to Randy Roberts preach from time to time on the Loma Linda University? Yeah, yeah you guys are listening to good stuff. Randy is senior pastor of Loma Linda University Church, and he was also my suite mate up on the fourth floor at Berman Hall at Andrews University back when we were going to school. Neither one of us had roommates, but we were each suite mates, so we were like super roommates for each other. And we would walk back and forth between the bathrooms into each, each, each of our dorm rooms and hassle one another. Uh, there were mostly grad students and seminary students up on fourth floor, and there was another guy living up there that, uh, he was an interesting guy named Jim Bunch, who later became a hospital administrator. Now, Jim Bunch was always playing practical jokes on the residents of Fourth Floor. So one day, Randy Roberts and several other guys, one of which will be unnamed in this story, decided to play a trick on Jim while he was off at class. They went down to the dairy farm. Back in the day, Andrews University had a dairy. Uh, they had a herd, and they sold milk to help finance the expenses of the campus. Well, they went down to the dairy farm, and they got a calf. And they brought it back up to the dorm, and they put that calf on an elevator, and they took it up to fourth floor and put it in Jim Bunch's room and tied it to his bed. A couple hours later, Jim Bunch came back to the dorm. He rode the elevator up to fourth floor. He got out. He walked down the hall to his room, and he opened the door. When Jim Bunch opened his door, guess what he did not say? Jim did not say, oh no, I've always been afraid this might happen. A calf has just popped into existence in my bedroom, uncaused, out of nothing. He didn't. You know what Jim said? Who did this? This has got to be the work of Randy Roberts. 
Scientists all know stuff doesn't just spontaneously generate. If it, begi if it begins to exist, it has a cause. Nobody argues it the other way. Now, all the evidence from physics points to the fact that the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. Who or what could it be? And so now you've got a lot of really interesting theories popping up. Atheistic scientists are trying to get around the Big Bang. They have proposed multiple universes, oscillating universes, string theory, all kinds of stuff that by definition can never be observed and therefore can never be tested, never quantified with data. They are all just theoretical, wild ideas to try to get around the idea of a beginning because a beginning implies a beginner. Another guy you may have heard of, Stephen Hawking, he wrote some equations showing that if you go back in time far enough, you don't actually come to a point of origin. You actually come to a bend in the space-time continuum and end up going forward again. Think of it like you're walking straight toward the North Pole. And you keep walking north, and you never change directions. But when you get to the North Pole and keep walking straight, what happens? You end up walking south the direction from which you came. But there's really no scientific evidence, no hard evidence that supports any other theory right now other than the Big Bang. You've got to fudge your data to make, it, to make it that way. In fact, that's exactly what Stephen Hawking did. He fudged his equations by using imaginary numbers instead of real numbers. Now, imaginary numbers are not fake numbers. Imaginary numbers are multiples of the square root of negative one. But if you substitute real numbers back into Hawking's equations, guess what happens? You get an origin, a beginning, beyond which there was nothing. Remember now, this is not a proof for God. It's a clue, but it's a really compelling one. That somebody had to exist before there was time or stuff in order to get it all started. But there's more, because the Kalem argument doesn't just give us a transcendent cause for the universe. It also implies a personal creator of enormous intelligence and power. Here's how. There are two basic ways to explain how something is caused. There's a scientific explanation and a personal explanation. Scientific explanations work by describing a set of initial conditions and natural laws. In other words, the natural laws explain how the initial conditions change to produce whatever it is you're observing. Here's an example. Imagine you walk into your kitchen and you see a teapot boiling on the stove. You ask, how did that teapot come to be boiling? Your wife or your friend, who might be both, appears in the doorway and says, well, because the electrical energy of the hot coil is transferred to the metal bottom of the pot to the water, causing the molecules to vibrate faster and faster until finally they're thrown off as steam. That's a scientific explanation, and it's true. But I'd be willing to bet you my house that if I asked Colette that question, that's not what she'd say. <laughs> she'd say, because I put it on to have a cup of tea. And that's a personal explanation. Here's the point, and follow me here now. There's no scientific explanation for the pre-Big Bang state of the universe because there were not any initial conditions. There was not space, time, matter. None of that existed before the Big Bang. So the only other explanation is the personal one, the personal one. A personal God created the universe because he wanted friendship with the beings he was about to make. He wanted people to love. That's you and me. And he wanted them to love him back, which means they had to be made with free moral agency because God didn't have to make the universe. He chose to. He had to be very powerful. 
And he had to be very, very smart because it had to be done just right. Here's what I mean. In the past 40 years or so, scientists have discovered that for organic life to exist at all, and there are, other, there are some people that theorize that there might be other forms of life not based on carbon, maybe based on silicon or, or some other, and, and that's, that's, that would be really weird life. But for organic life to exist at all, there are some very fundamental regularities and physical constants that have to be fine-tuned with utmost precision and even if one of them is off by even the slightest amount, then life, as we know it, is impossible. There's zero chance. The fact that all these physical constants, and there are about a couple of dozen of them, are indeed set precisely right, well, the only reasonable explanation is superintelligence. When scientists talk about things like fine-tuning, they are referring to the extraordinary balancing of the fundamental laws and the parameters of physics. Things like the very precise and unchanging value of the speed of light, or the gravitational constant, or the exquisite balance between the strong and the weak nuclear forces. This ultra-precise fine-tuning of all these parameters has come to be known as the anthropic principle. Anthropic means having to do with mankind. And what the principle essentially says is that all these seemingly unrelated constants in physics have one thing in common. They are precisely the values you absolutely must have if you want a universe capable of sustaining life. Tim Keller calls it the cosmic welcome mat. It's as if the whole universe was prepared specifically with human beings in mind. Again, this is not a proof, but it is a really good clue. And the fact that so many atheistic scientists have attacked it might mean it's a pretty formidable clue. Even Discover Magazine, a few years back, marveled, and I quote, the universe is unlikely, very unlikely, deeply shockingly unlikely, end quote. So in the remaining minutes, let me just share with you a few examples of this, and I know we are going just a little bit long this morning, but I think you'll find these fascinating. I do, at least. One is the precise, value, the precise process by which carbon and oxygen are produced inside of stars. Most of you know that carbon and oxygen are essential for human life, probably the two most essential elements for, for life as we know it, carbon and oxygen. Elements are made of atoms, and each atom has a nucleus made of protons and neutrons. The protons and the neutrons are held together in the nucleus by what physicists call the strong nuclear force. There's also a weak nuclear force, but the strong force is what keeps the protons and the neutrons from flying apart inside the nucleuses of atoms, okay? As it turns out, just a 1% change in the strong nuclear force. You change the strength of that force by just 1% either way, and you get a thousand-fold impact on the production of carbon and oxygen in stars, which means you don't get the building blocks for life. You get a universe without much carbon or oxygen. Here's another example. One physical co uh, constant that we all know about that we all experience is gravity. Right? Gravity is the force of attraction between two bodies. Of all the forces known in nature, gravity is the weakest force. Now, you may not think that's so when you fall off a ladder or jump off a cliff. <coughs> but gravity is a real wimp compared to the strong nuclear force that we just talked about. The strong nuclear force is 10 thousand, billion, 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 billion times stronger than gravity. If this ratio is off by just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 then really bad things happen. To put that in perspective, think about this. Imagine a tape measure marked off in inches 
that stretches all the way across the universe. Millions and trillions and trillions of inches. Okay? That tape measure represents the range of forces in the universe, with gravity being the weakest force at one end, and the strongest nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, the strongest force in nature being at the other end of the tape measure. Now imagine moving the force of gravity just one inch closer to the strong nuclear force on the tape measure. Guess what happens if you do that? With that tiny adjustment, you have just changed the force of gravity by a magnitude of a billion. So you think you have a weight problem now? Hmm. If you weigh 200 pounds in this universe, you will weigh 100 million tons in that universe. You would be crushed flat under your own weight. The largest animals that could possibly survive in that kind of universe would be insects, and they would have legs like elephants. But that wouldn't matter, because the biggest planet you can possibly have in that kind of universe would be less than 40 feet in diameter. All that happens if you just change the ratio of gravity to the strong nuclear force by one hundred billion billion billionth of a percent. That's what scientists mean when they talk about fine-tuning. It really is fine-tuning. And there's not just one or two values like that. There are over 20 of them, all fantastically preset to just the right value. How could that happen? Here's another. Steven Weinberg is a Nobel-winning physicist. He's also an atheist, but he's amazed at how well the cosmological constant is adjusted in our favor. This number describes the energy density of empty space, and it's part of Einstein's general theory of relativity, which means I don't understand it and you don't either. But Weinberg does, and he says if the cosmological constant were large and positive, it would attract it would act as a repulsive force that gets stronger with distance, and so nothing would have been able to clump together in the early universe. No clumping together, no atoms. No atoms, no dust. No dust, no planets or stars or galaxies. On the other hand, if the cosmological constant were large and negative, it would act as an attractive force that gets stronger with distance, in which case the universe would have collapsed in on itself in a few nanoseconds after it started. But surprise, that's not what happened. In fact, Weinberg says, and I quote him now, astronomical observations show the constant is quite small, very much smaller than would have been guessed from first principles, its precise setting is widely regarded as the single greatest problem facing physics and cosmology today. Well, it's only a problem if you assume there's no God. The fine-tuning of this constant has been estimated to be one part in a hundred million billion 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 billion. That's one followed by 54 zeros. That's a really, really big number. To get a sense of how big this number is, it's like the odds of winning the Powerball a trillion times in a row. It's like throwing a lawn dart from here at a target the size of a pinpoint on Mars and getting a bullseye. Or the difference in mass between protons and neutrons. You change that ratio just one-tenth of one percent, and nuclear fusion in stars quits working. It would be lights out, literally. Or the expansion rate of the universe, fine-tuned to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's one with 48 zeros. Change it by one part either way, just the tiniest little bit faster or the tiniest little bit slower. No life would be possible. God says, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who made all this? Do you know the laws of the heavens? He says, well, we're learning them. And guess what? They all, they all kind of point to him. The clue phone is ringing. Now maybe, just maybe, all this happened by chance. By some astronomically high, off-the-charts odds, all those constants just happened to come out exactly right. That's one explanation. You can't disprove that. Philosopher Alvin 
Plantinga says that that's kind of like a card player dealing himself 20 straight hands of four aces at the poker table. What are the other card players doing? They're reaching for their six shooters. They are. But wait, says the poker player. I know this looks suspicious, but it's just luck. That's all. I am just a very lucky guy. Or maybe he says, there are an infinite number of universes with an infinite number of possible poker hands. We all just happen to be playing poker in the one universe where I always deal myself four aces without cheating. And they shoot him dead. <laughs> it's technically possible we all just happen to be in the one universe where all these things hit the right settings, but that's not a reasonable explanation, not even a little bit. On the other hand, the possibility that God exists and he did all this on purpose would surely fit the evidence. It's the kind of God that's described in the pages of a book called the Bible, a good God. And is it any wonder when he got it all done, he stood back and said, wow, this is very good. It's very good. And if he did such a beautiful job with the vastness and the complexity of the universe, he can do a good job with me too. And he can do a good job with you. No matter what you're going through, he can handle it. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will, not, they will walk and not be faint. Please stand with us. And Lord, we've just sung it, but we say it again. You are great, very great, and you have done all things well. Not only in the creation, but the way you have redeemed us through your son. And we thank you for that, and we are proud and thankful to be on your team. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.